This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Alan, how you doing? Episode 11. We're really getting up there. This yeah. exciting. We're 10% <laughs> deep, 10% more than we had last week. Uh, that's true. It's no, good we math. are 10% it's good, more. It's, yeah. it's good, good math right there. It's there you math. go for philosophy continue. major, right? Yeah, it's going to continue getting getting lower and lower as we go. Well, oh, that's true too, right? It's a declining return on investment, right? So, yeah, all right. This is, this is rough. This is rough. So, Today's episode, we're going to chat about um, leading edges on uh, on prop planes uh, and some of just the electrical problems that can cause, like noise issues and obviously like the lightning implications. Yeah. Because um, there's obviously a lot of different uh, types of props. There's different ways of combating that stuff. So that's kind of on our docket today. That's going to probably be a, a pretty widespread conversation, it sounds like. But first things first, what's your favorite airline? Oh, if you have to pick one, who do you go with? American and in America, in America, Southwest, Southwest. It isn't because I like them either. Uh, because I, I really, the thing about Southwest is it's so well. It was it was so full every year. Every flight I've been on with Southwest in probably the last two or three years has been one hundred percent full. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you you got to give them some a little bit of credit that. The flight staff is very amenable, helpful, mm-hmm. upfront, cheery, and you do get it on off the airplane pretty fast. And they fly a lot of different places, and it's pretty clean cut. So you can put some luggage on the airplane to get charged a whole bunch of money. Yeah, Southwest yeah. is it. I I do like their baggage system. I'll give them that. I had a couple of rough experiences, uh, like the last within the last two years, kind of soured me on it. But mm. I do agree with everything you just said. It's nice well, when you're on like Delta or American, they'll have uh, power outlets on the seats that yeah. Southwest doesn't have yet. But Southwest has the free, and I don't know if other airlines do this, maybe Delta does, but uh, Southwest has the free live TV and movies that are free. And mm-hmm. then you can you can buy Wi-Fi for about eight bucks, whatever it is. So that's, that's not bad. Yeah, it's, it's not it, bad. No, it's not bad. It's just so full. <laughs> or at least it was. It was so full. It's not full anymore. No but, more. Yeah, in the land of coronavirus, that was the be- before no. time. In the before time, they had full airplanes. Right. In the after time, well, I'm not so no sure. Sh- what do you? I, do you think it's going to change? I don't think it's going to change all that much. I, I think uh, yeah, we're I probably. Don't know. I probably can't. The logistics. It just won't make sense to fly half full airplanes. No, no, it makes zero sense at all. I, and I'm, I'm kind of wondering, based on some of the Twitter traffic that I see lately. Airplanes are pretty full in some cases. Uh, you know, you've seen the, the, some of the passengers complain about the flight being 100% full and the airline's trying to respond to that. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Yeah. I don't know. You're going to have to do something. Whatever that answer is, I don't know. Make everybody wear a mask. I'm sure that's what the, the answer is right now. And then try to s- spray the airplane down with Lysol or whatever they're doing between flights. That's what else can you do? Yeah. Yeah, I saw a report, which I'm over the whole, you know, they just report these crazy cases of like, you know, oh, here's a young person that that died from coronavirus. They're like the one young person in the country or whatever. And it's like, 
let's not all freak out over like there are people with all sorts of afflictions that afflict a tiny percentage of the population it's unfortunate but um one of them so there was a story about this i guess he is this guy was a virologist that's his like he's a doctor and he was on a flight and he had a mask he had his gloves like he was fully suited up Mm -hmm. got it got covid from it and he's like oh i probably got it through my eyes then and everyone's like oh god it's coming through the eyeballs we need goggles um and it's well, like i mean i guess that seems legit like if, you, if i you know if you cough in my eye right now yeah i'll probably i'll probably get coronavirus from you <laughs> totally get it like that's how you become a zombie in the movie um that's 28 exactly days, 28 thinking, days later the guy is looking up and he gets thing. that drop of blood in his eye and he starts freaking that's out that's it he's over yep. he's a zombie yep. right <laughs> so i don't know they, I don't think that story got too much traction, but for a minute, everyone's like, oh, man, it's over. It's over, but, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's the Bob didn't listen to instructions. Now Bob has corona. And yeah, okay, yeah. sure. Need, need my goggles, but <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting. There's so, I don't know. This is just like such an ongoing saga trying to keep everyone healthy. Like, and it's legitimate. Like, we all, we want to try our best. Obviously, it's a real thing, but it's just. No, it's uh, real. It's like only so much you can do at some point. Right. And and I I think you have to just be smart. I think a lot of it is just being smart. It's just like with the whole thing at the masks in the last 72 hours or so, where before, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like yesterday where the CDC came out and said, hey, masks may be helpful. Yeah, no kidding, right? Come yeah. on. And I, I don't know. Captain Obvious pops up in my head when I hear stuff like that. But again, it's most most people would have had that thought already and said, oh, you know, why don't I put on a mask? Because it probably makes a little bit of sense for me to do that here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just, <laughs> I'm going to throw another commercial to Home Depot. But when I was up at Home Depot the other day, everybody had a mask on. And it wasn't because it was forced. It was because uh, everybody was thinking about everybody else still, which is, which is good. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, Costco got a lot of press this week because a Costco employee uh, took away someone's cart that wasn't wearing a mask, and it was Wait. like, and the, an irate customer was like, "Hey, this is a free country. I'm not wearing a mask." And the guy's <laughs> like, "No, it's our store policy. Like, you can wear a mask, or you know, like, go home." And One the, the guy, other. Got, and so the guy's like trying to shame him, and the guy just was still polite and just like, "Sorry, like you're not welcome here anymore." Took his cart. Was that a Washington uh, D.C. like the no, lady in the Walmart? No, no, okay. I don't think so. We're okay. we're doing all right, but um, <laughs> it's like yeah. I mean, like that's never not been a thing. Like a, you know, businesses can say you have to wear a shirt, you have to wear shoes. They're yeah. allowed to do that. It's a private yeah. business. You can't mm. bring in your pet into the store, or right, unless it's you know yeah. you have a medical reason to have the pet in the store. Then fine, right? Yeah, yeah. come on, so just be considerate of others. Yeah. yeah, it's like this strange, like, I, it's America. I want to do what I want. It's like, look, just go grocery shopping in a mask. It's not a big deal. Just really not that big a deal. Like, and and just go about your business. So I can I can drive on the wrong side of the road, too, but I don't do it because I'm going to hurt somebody. That's why I don't do it, right? Yeah, you, you, can, do a, you can do a lot of things that, that are not smart. That's just not smart right now. Be Just be kind. Just yeah. be kind, right? Seems like the way to go. So let's talk about uh, prop planes. So... Hmm. Back in the day, when planes were made out of, they had wood propellers. <laughs> yes. What what would happen if they got struck by lightning? Just, to, uh, just that's oh, that. Oh yeah. See in the it's, ocean. It's over. Goodbye. 
right you're you're now a glider <laughs> a very heavy glider it's Good not luck. ideal no I mean, were there were there any that you know of documented like planes that went down like that like their propeller gets hit splinters shatters and just nothing comes to mind at the minute but yeah i couldn't think of in my research either well if if you ever go down to the air and space museum which is what five blocks from your 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 space no it's uh it's like probably a mile and a half no it's walkable yeah for sure Uh, everything's walkable in dc yeah so at the air and space museum back in 2003 right so it was the 100th anniversary of the first wright brothers flight they had a big display and i'm not sure that if that display is still up or not but we we took a sure. we took a southwest airlines flight to dc for the day to go to see that exhibit and one of the things that they had there was some of the original propellers uh for the right flyer mm-hmm. and he, he just went you thought to yourself my god how does somebody come up with that and how did that not come apart i don't even know you know, it's it's a it's a miracle that they made that work and they had put enough engineering into it to get it to work. But one of the th- one of the things you see in a lot of propellers, even back then, I mean, we're talking nineteen, well, nineteen oh eight, nineteen twelve, is that they started to put uh, some metal around the leading edge of those propellers to make them more durable. Mm-hmm. There you go, right? And a lot of and well, this, this especially when you got into World War One, you see that a lot more in World War One, where you see metal on the leading edge of the propellers just make it more durable yeah well, spe- speaking of interesting propeller stories i went to the uh i think it was the world war one museum in kansas city have you been there no uh-uh I haven't been there yeah i think it's the world war one museum and uh i really liked it i learned a lot i didn't know much about world war one because we just never studied it in school and although right. i like i like history i'm not like a crazy history buff but mm. i had no idea how like crazy that war was it was just like Austria did this, and then Germany punched them in the face, and then they punched. It was like this crazy thing, and I mean, it's a it's a really fascinating thing. Again, like didn't learn that in, in school, so you know, then you get to college and you study what you study. So it just like got overlooked in my education. But mm-hmm. anyway, I, th- I thought it was really fascinating. But one of the tour guides was uh, so when we were into the area where like talking about a lot of the presidents, and they had a cane, this wooden cane, and I just happened to be standing there, like we weren't on a guided tour, but one of the tour guides was explaining that this cane was from teddy roosevelt's son who was shot down um you know he crashed and died and a soldier mm-hmm. found found the wreckage took the wooden propeller whittled it into a into a cane and gave it to uh president roosevelt this wow. was this was this was and i watched the roosevelt uh documentary recently and this was like his his youngest son like the really like gregarious like everyone loved him they said it was like teddy roosevelt's favorite son even wow. though I know fathers, you know, try not to like say that, <laughs> but, um, and yeah, they said he, he used that, that walking stick or that cane until, until, hmm. until he, he passed on. So I, it's a really interesting story. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. I know next to us, uh, not very far from us, maybe an hour and a half or two hours from here is the Rhinebeck or old Rhinebeck aerodrome where they fly World War One vintage aircraft on the weekends it's fascinating to watch over there last summer watching them fly those world war one airplanes uh one they're really really noisy and they're just so rudimentary simplistic things you got to wonder how many pilots died because the airplane broke probably most of them uh 
when you see those airplanes fly because you don't have that experience one about the size of them mm-hmm. you, you don't get a perspective on that and then you get up close to me like man this is all made out of wood and it's and like they're they got castor oil on the fuel so that they can lubricate the motor and some of them have the rotating motor bit and they have these weird spark plug firing mechanisms to change the speed of the motor and just really <laughs> you know you're you're 15 years away from the Wright brothers flying to sort of World War One-ish airplane things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's and and the the when we were over there, one of the interesting thing was is all the propeller technology. How much propellers had changed in those ten to fifteen years from the Wright brothers to where they were in World War One. There were some pretty unique advancements, but a lot of those propellers, were, I think they were all made out of uh, out of wood. Still, they really hadn't switched over because it would have been too heavy to make out of anything metallic. Wasn't what, about so, el- what about elephant tusks? There were like yeah. so many elephants back then. Like, come on, guys. <laughs> There's so many things you could have built it out of. But I think they had, well, just like today with us in aluminum, we, we know so much about it. We don't want to change it because we've, we've developed a whole industry around it. And at that time, they had developed an industry of making airplanes out of wood. So uh, that was something that they knew because they had made wagons and things like that out of wood for, and homes and things out of wood forever. So to take the the knowledge base they had and to grow it into airplanes mm-hmm. is, is what they did even the they had a one of the interesting things is they had a uh, a, a, a replica of the spirit of st louis that they had built so you can get really close to a replica of the spirit of st louis and even then that was 1927 roughly a lot of that's wood pretty much all of it's wood uh you know there's so you look at the some of the structure in there at least i thought it was wood i had to go back and look at that but it was just like the the most flimsy structure you could imagine to be flying in across the ocean like, there's mm-hmm. no way i would do that yeah. yeah so then where do we go after wood was it aluminum like what was the next like commonly yeah used that was aluminum yeah it happened during world war ii uh that's like the b-29 bomber some parts of that are made out of wood and fabric, but a large part is made out of aluminum. And then, um, you know, then we started getting to sort of aluminum propellers, and because of the the props guys, props got so big that you couldn't make it out of wood anymore. So it was around just before World War Two. Yeah, and then was the th- was the B twenty nine the one that they were just talking about in that that checklist book that we we both recently read? Uh, did you get, did you get that part in it yet? I'm pretty sure it was the B twenty nine. I don't think I got to that part yet. Like I said, that book is enormous. I don't know why. That's the world's longest audio book. Why do I not think it's enormous? <laughs> I well, don't know. So we referenced this in our other podcast, but this book uh, called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, who's a, who's a physician mm. who's just advocating for the use of checklists in like highly complex jobs like medicine, construction, you know, aviation. But he talked about when Boeing was about to unveil, I th- I'm very sure it became the B-29, they had this new plane that could hold, like, I guess the the Department of Defense said, we need a bomber that can hold X amount of bombs. And then Boeing's like, hey, we got one that's got, like, five times more than that, like, way more. And then, so they basically were about to roll this out. The test flight was basically just, like, a, like we already know, like, the defense, Department of Defense knows they're going to buy this plane. Like, this is, like, the one. And then, because it, it could do so many new things, it crashed. And then, like, the deal was off, and they gave this big contract to, a, like, a lesser bomber. I can't remember what the, the rival company was. And then, right. but basically, they said, like, they had this test pilot who was very, like, it was, like, one of the best test pilots out there at the time. But he just, like, it was just a complex plane. He, like, forgot something, and the thing went down. And I then think years it, yeah. later, they're like, 
people were afraid to fly. They're like, well, if the best guy crashed this, like this plane's unflyable. It's too, it's too complicated. And then they just started devising checklists and all these systems to just like, and then they're like, this plane is great. And then it eventually became what it was supposed to be, which and I, right. like I said, I'm 99.9% sure that this was the, the B-29. Yeah, I think and, you're right. Um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, you're, interesting I, that, story. It was an interesting story because the, I think they found that they had some control locks, very simple things to keep the surfaces, the control surfaces from blowing around in the breeze when it gets windy and, and breaking something. So they had these control, it's, if mm-hmm. I remember correctly, they had some control locks in things that now we now put red flags on so you can't miss them. Uh, so you make sure you remove them before flight. They actually say remove before flight on the, on these little flags. Uh, I think that was the act. That's what drove that accident. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you'll get there at some point in the book, which is apparently the longest book of all time. But it felt not that long to me. But maybe that's just because I haven't I haven't had that many good audiobooks on my list recently. It's so it's the know. war and peace of audiobooks. I don't know why it's so dang long. I gotta figure out. I gotta figure out how this long this one is. Let's it, go to the source. How many chapters can you put in an audiobook? Because there's no way the paper version of that was that long, unless they're like the world's shortest chapters. But when you read it out, it's different, right? So when you when you're scanning it with six hours, ten minutes, that's a short audio. Okay, it's a all short right. Audiobook. Wait, 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 wait. How many chapters are there? Because I I grade it in chapters. There's probably sixty chapters. What are you? What are you in middle school? You grade it by chapters? Like it's <laughs> a chapter book? <laughs> you're like you're you go by through, pages. Like, you where go does by this, pages. Uh, there are no pages. The only way in in the podcast world, the only way to know how far how long this thing is is to scan through how many chapters they have. There's no way there's mm. that many chapters in the real book. No way. <laughs> there's uh, no way. Hmm. I don't know. I can't. I can't jump to it that quickly. But yeah, not a not a long book because no, okay. six, six hours is maybe 160 pages, something like oh, that. Oh no! Come on. Yeah. Yeah. It's short. Well, my book is 300, 320 pages maybe, and it's about 12 hours long. Oh, okay. All right. So, I'll, I'll, I will yield to you ebooks. <laughs> yeah i'll take airplanes you have ebooks well most ebooks most ebooks are eight to ten hours that's that's typical man I what I found. Like and that's it. and that's like 200 to 250 pages it seems like well you know what the thing is I, i've done a lot less driving um usually i listen to ebooks when i drive so it's easy yeah. and you don't think about the time going by because you know you're going to spend an hour in a car regardless uh and with our son being home from school we're not going back and forth to where he goes to school at which is about a you know little over over an hour hour 15 minutes and so i used to listen yeah. to ebooks well i don't do that anymore so now it seems like those ebooks last forever <laughs> yeah i just uh i just go in cycles where i'll listen to an, like an absurd amount of them because i do have a lot of just like time where i'm doing kind of busy work or whatever or i'm walking or doing something um but i just like i'll i'll read like 30 ebooks in like four months and mm. or audiobooks in four months and i'll just be like out of them for a while like i just can't find one that i want to read or whatever so I kind of go like I, I kind of have ebbs and flows. So in my year, so I've been on a lot of podcasts recently. But I okay. only read ebooks that you send me. So that's what I'm doing. Whatever Dan go. sends me is what I'm reading. <laughs> there you go. But that one was good. I mean, if you're out there listening, highly recommend this book, The Checklist Manifesto, because especially if you're in this industry, it'll give you some perspective for like me for like making websites, even for like these shows, like getting a, a podcast going. You can easily forget one thing, and it screws you up. Like you know, you get the wrong frame rate on your camera, you forget to hit play, which I've had numerous podcasts and done that numerous times. And you're like, you got to have a checklist, just run through. Is the that light green? Is that light green? Is this running? Is, you know, like, 
Is the mail sign? Is my computer plugged in? Is my camera have battery? Like all that stuff. Because yep. super easy to forget one of the six things and then it shuts off halfway through. And you're like, ugh, ugh. <laughs> So there we are. All right, so back to propellers. Um, so aluminum, how do they handle lightning strikes? Aluminum's great because it's really conductive and it just goes into the engine. It causes a lot of problems in the engine, but propellers just get these little burn marks on the edge and you, a lot of times you just buff them out. Uh, they know, wouldn't, they, I mean, like how sharp are they at the end? I mean, obviously they're like pretty big and thick, so they're not too yeah. thin where they'd melt at the end, just like a little burn. Yeah, it's it's like uh, someone took a welder and hit the end of it, electric welder. That's what it looks it's a like. Little, little burn mark. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Maybe because it's spinning so fast and the it's sort of hit lightning tends to move to all the different blades so it kind of divides out the energy to each of the blades oh that makes sense yeah 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 so it's kind of like on off on off on off thing that happens yeah okay so then it gets rooted through the engine what happens then because that seems like a that seems like the worst thing that could happen it is a light lightning strikes your engine but they don't they're not going down like you know like oh no 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 it's not a crash situation it's just that all the bearings and all the raceways that are Oh, those very expensive surfaces that have been machined into the into the motor yeah. housing get ruined, and so you have to go in and tear the whole engine apart, and it's expensive. So pilots hate it, absolutely hate it. That's why you don't fly around lightning because that that repair or inspection is so costly. It's crazy expensive. So are the and the and turboprop planes are mostly smaller planes these days. Like I I think I've only flown in maybe one in my life. I took a flight from. I think it was, I think it was Vancouver to Edmonton. We took a prop plane, and so I had yeah. to walk out on the tarmac. It was like, yep. what is, what am I going through a time? Am I in the Twilight Zone right now? Like, what's happening? <laughs> it was really strange. It was really you cool. Heard Al I, I Jolson thought, music in the background. Like I, da, da, yeah, da, da, da. yeah. <laughs> you got a like fedora I, on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Suddenly, I look down. I'm carrying a briefcase. My laptop's a, a writing tablet. And, You're right. Uh, it's yeah, like Casablanca. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just like that. It was cool. It was cool. Yeah. It wasn't a very big plane, and maybe like sixty no. seats or something. Well, this is the thing about weight and balance. Is the only the time. Well, there's two airplanes I've been weight and balanced on, mostly on uh, propeller-driven airplanes. But I got weight and balanced on an Embraer 145 one day. That was interesting. But did you uh, have to move move to the other side, or what happened? Yeah, I had to move forward. Of all things, I had a nice like whole row in the back by myself. Like, hey, sir, mm. we need you to sit up here in the crowded space. Dang it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I used to fly a lot of propeller airplanes. Um, American Airlines used to have a bunch of them in the Midwest, and so they were they were shorts uh, airplanes, which is a high wing, very similar to the Sky Courier that Cessna is developing right now, a very similar airplane. Uh, it's kind of a boxy thing uh, with high wing that the, that the uh, Bel- that was made in Belfast. And that used to fly in that quite a quite a number of times at college and then obviously i've flown in enough kingers in my lifetime just from from working there so i've been a lot of propeller airplanes it's they're interesting they're kind of you know that the thing is they're a little noisy but they're reliable as all get out those turboprop engines the pt6 engines are so reliable the safety records just off the charts and and when we say turboprop what, what makes it turbo uh, just, it's, it's, like just a, air, it's just air injected, like a, like a turbo, like uh, car, car engine or what? Sort of. It's essentially a jet engine with a propeller on the end of it. Think of it that way. Right? Hmm. It, it has a hot section in it, and there's a propeller. So it's very similar to it. It's essentially what it is. It's a jet engine with a propeller on it. I don't know what so what, what, what's, and what's the advantage of that? 
it's not a piston, so it's got it. It's not a piston engine, so it's got a rotating core, much like a jet engine. Oh, so the it's, jet engine is rotating the propeller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Essentially. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's sometimes a gearbox. There's usually a gearbox or something in the middle of that, but hmm. yeah. Uh, it's a very efficient way to burn fuel and rotate a propeller and it's such a simplistic mechanical device and they've, they've done it for so many years that their liability just shot way up because they've just made them better and better and better yeah so you say they don't want to get hit by lightning so nope. avoiding flying in storms one thing but is there anything else they do to the to a turboprop plane or a prop plane in general that can say hey strike me here don't strike me on the propeller no, because the propellers tend to be so large, rest to the to the to the aircraft itself. They tend to be high, the highest thing and the lowest, or almost the lowest thing. Uh, definitely the highest thing on it. And the just because of where they are, they tend to take most of the strikes. So it's it's really hard. Like on the King Airs, the 1900s, uh, the Q400. Those uh, Q400 has a longer nose on it, but a lot of times the engines just get struck. And with the the latest propellers being made out of carbon fiber or some sort of Kevlar, uh, non-conductive stuff, the propellers have changed quite a bit over time. I know when I was working at Beach there, they were using uh, uh, composite propellers and uh, very similar to what we've been talking about on wind turbines. They, they had um, essentially a nickel hard metallic leading edge to for prevent erosion of the blade and hit nice particles and that sort of thing and one of the things on the static side was that those propeller blades would charge up and then they just start throwing this huge electrical sparks everywhere it would make the radios all staticky the pilots couldn't use the radios and it would throw this these big arcs to the side of the fuselage and it was exciting, uh, but you know the the thing about those composite propellers is that they're so dang reliable. They don't crack. You know the, the problem with anything out of out of metal is that you're looking for cracks to develop. It cracks, it don't stop, and then you have these catastrophic failures. Well, composites don't have catastrophic failures like that because cracks don't propagate like that because it's made out of a woven fabric and it doesn't tend to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay, that, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. right? So you get this really durable uh, blade design on the mechanical side which is what you want and but on the on the electrical side you got all these problems that come with it which is especially if the blades made out of something like kevlar where it's non-conductive and you put these metal leading edges on it and you have to find a way to ground them and this propellers are spinning at unbelievable speeds and so anything that you stick on there wants to get thrown off and yeah so you there's a lot of bandages that go on there to make those things sort of work engineering wise it's not the cleanest design you'll ever see but uh we, you know, when working in the working on propeller airplanes for enough enough time is it makes you consider all aspects of the mechanical and the electrical side. Um, we ran into some difficulties when I was working at Beach there with some of the night airplanes and the propellers there, and having to go debug that stuff was an adventure. In fact, that was the first time that was the first time that a pilot asked me to find the fire extinguisher. We were flying. Uh, static. We had an airplane that had a static charge problem with it, and we were flying out in Wyoming or Montana. So we had taken off. We were flying along, and you could smell smoke in the in the. I was sitting in the back, and I was like, "Man, it smells like there's smoke." <laughs> the co-pilot turns around and says, "Hey, find the fire extinguisher." I'm like, 
I have no idea where a fire extinguisher is. He, he says, well, go find it because we may have a fire up here. So I'm scrambling around looking for the fire extinguisher on this on this airplane. And uh, of, of all the things, one of the this airplane had a static charge issue dealing with the propeller and the customer had made a bunch of modifications to the airplane trying to find out where that static discharge was occurring they didn't realize it was on a propeller so they had modded up the airplane they put a lot of bond jumpers everywhere and one of the places they put a bond jumper was on the windshield heat return so what's well, a, what's a what's a bond jumper real quick it's just a, it's basically a copper wire uh usually it's about uh 12 10 gauge 12 gauge copper wire so it's used to like bond radio equipment to connect things like connect radio shells to another radio shell or to connect this electrical component to the air airframe. Okay. It just a, it's a sort of a ground fault path thing. Uh, but they had put a bunch of these bond jumpers on this airplane. And th- we, we knew that that had happened. We knew that that happened because we had opened the airplane up. And we just, what are all these bond jumpers everywhere? So these, these wires that don't belong there, they're not on the engineering drawing, but this airplane had been modded with them. And they had done that to the to the cockpit window. Uh, they thought maybe the cockpit window was causing static problems, so they they grounded this window with one of these bond jumpers, and it wasn't sized for how much current you used to heat the window. So this wire got really hot and started smoking, and <laughs> so we're all on the airplane like we're in the middle of nowhere, we're in Wyoming or wherever we were, and this airplane's smoking, and we got to get somewhere. And we're looking for fire extinguishers. We're telling um, the FAA controllers, like, hey, we may have to declare an emergency. And I'm running around looking for a fire extinguisher in this airplane. And we finally, you know, we just finally said, you know, let's just start tur- turning off things until it goes away. And we could turn off the window heat and it went away. But when we got the airplane on the ground, we opened it up and, you know, you got this wire that's just cooked inside of there. I just remember thinking, you know, when you walk onto an airplane that's been modded like that, you just never know what little gremlin they've created trying to find. Um, trying to eliminate another problem, which what tends to happen is you try to eliminate one problem, you make a couple of others. Well, doesn't someone, I mean, you talk about all the, how difficult it is to certify an aircraft and how many safety things are in place. How can you just like modify a plane and just like, uh, like, how is that I think, okay? I think the times have changed more recently. It used to be that, uh, this is an airline. So airlines have their own repair facilities and they have the authority to mod their airplanes. They have a kind of a uh, system set up where they can, on a particular airplane, you can make a change to a particular airplane, not a group of airplanes, uh, with a field approval. It's called a field approval. So it's like a, there's a form. It's called a 337 form. There's a 337 form. So you can justify the change to the airplane, record the change to the airplane, but it's not from our from the from the aircraft manufacturer's perspective. Like we don't know that that's there. So when an airplane shows up at a manufacturer that's been out in service for a while, you're not necessarily sure what the configuration of the aircraft is. You have to go pull the books. And that's after that happened. That's exactly what we did. We got we said okay, uh, we're going to go ask for all the records on this airplane and dig through it and find out what's going on. Hmm. And then then we started figuring out like, well, there's a lot more bond jumpers here in places we couldn't see. And that's how I actually ended up figuring out the problem was we figured out that um, they put a bond chopper in some place they shouldn't have and it's causing them problems. Hmm, that's interesting. So uh, let's back up. So you said some of these static issues with propeller-driven airplanes. Kind of sum that up again for me really quick because you said it can just be throwing, essentially throwing static charge onto the <laughs> yeah. plane. Yeah, so if you have a, uh, a piece of metal that's not grounded properly 
uh, you can build up a, or, or something that's conductive. It doesn't have to be a piece of metal. It can be something that's conductive. If it's not properly grounded back to the airframe, it's going to build up charge on it. And the charge can get so large, particularly for a propeller, because the propeller is just sitting there spinning in the air. And if it's running into ice crystals all the time, it just sits there and just builds up charge. Just like mm-hmm. rubbing your feet on the carpet, very similar to that. So yeah. if you're rubbing it really fast, you know, you're running at several hundred miles an hour, essentially. And so you're building up charge very quickly to the point where the component, in this case, the propeller, can no longer hold that charge and it tries to dump it off wherever it can. So it can either dump it out to the atmosphere or as the propeller kind of runs closer to the fuselage, it can arc through the fuselage, which is what it was doing. Uh, Hmm. So if you looked on the side of the fuselage, you see these pot marks on the side of the fuselage. That's where these big discharges were occurring. yeah, it's exciting. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, it's like throwing its own lightning bolts, like a, yeah, like Zeus, just like chucking them at the plane. That seems terrifying. Very similar. I know you don't like uh, action movies or or, or uh, superhero movies, but if you ever watch Thor and he's twirling that hammer, it's very similar. <laughs> it hmm. looks very similar to that. You got these these discharges happening everywhere on this rotating thing. Yeah, scary. Okay, so. If someone says, hey, Alan, we need you to protect our, our prop plane, it's got a carbon fiber propeller mm. with this nickel uh, leading edge protection, mm. like, what are you doing for that for that plane? You, you got to connect the two together, um, and you got to make sure that everything, even the blade itself, the carbon fiber is grounded back to the airframe. So usually, if there's a heater involved, there's usually some sort of rotating rings in there that providing power. You can also use that to ground it. You gotta find a way to get the carbon fiber and, and the metal grounded back to the airframe so you can bleed off that charge without it building up so high. That's what you have yeah. to do. If you don't do that, you're gonna have a light show. And it's just electrically as noisy as you can possibly get because you got these big arcs being thrown that are a couple of feet away from your your radios. Not hmm. not not good. That's a bad and, day. And so you said with, with some of these prop planes they have big uh, noise problems, right? From Yep this yep. issue so yep. what, what is that what is that or how do you get what does that manifest itself as and like how do you fix that same, uh, same thing yeah yeah so what it sounds like a lot of times it sounds what they call motor boating it sounds like a motorboat it's got this got this buzzing noise it goes bzzz, and they call it motor boating and it kind of it can go up and down with speed and i actually had this same thing happen on a on a jet engine with the it happened at eclipse of all places we had a same same problem on a on a on a on, a, on an inlet fan on as a Pratt and Whitney, whatever that aircraft, it was, it was the engine was still in, in development there, so stuff like that happens in development. But anytime you have uh, a non-conductive piece of metal running into ice crystals, uh, it just builds up charge, and it, it, it starts making this awful noise in the radio. It sounds like a motorboat. It's gonna go, it goes bzzz, and that's well, that's all you hear. Uh, so you can't talk to the FAA control towers. You can't talk to another airplane. Mm. It's just constant noise in your radio all the time, and you, there's nothing to do about it. You just can't stop it, uh, except to fly out into clear air. Then it tends to go away. Gotcha. And then um, what was my last question here? So you said that the leading edge, you know, it, it's it's got to be really well bonded to that to that mm-hmm. propeller. So. Yeah. What uh, was it? Just a, is it epoxy? Is it bolts? I mean, obviously it's got to still be super aerodynamic. So, like, what what's typically the system that keeps those propellers in one one piece? Uh, so there's usually some sort of conductive paste or conductive adhesive. So they'll put the they'll put the propeller together structurally with bolts, whatever they're going to do there. 
But then on top of it, they usually put a conductive, a resistive paste. So it tends to be something that's carbon loaded. Sometimes it's silver loaded, so it can be silver loaded paste, but there's usually a paste involved to make the electrical connection, something that's pliable and that gotcha. can adapt to the surface. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what you usually see is some sort of conductive paste. And are there any other coatings on these? Like, is there an anti-static coating or like what other, what there other can pr- be. protections yeah. are there for a propeller? Yeah, you can have an anesthetic coating. The problem is when you put a, a nickel leading edge on, nickel does not like to be painted. So spraying a coating on nickel doesn't really work all that well. And that's the trouble. So you can paint the rest of the blade with an anesthetic coating. So say the blade's made out of Kevlar. You could you could spray the Kevlar with an anesthetic coating, much like we do with radomes. But what you can't do is you can't spray the nickel leading edge because it won't stick. Hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, as far as other considerations, I mean, say I had a propeller plane and we're here and you're helping me get it as airworthy and safe as far as the lightning side as possible. What other little little snippets of information do you have? Well, on propeller airplanes, uh, you know, if you're buying a used one, I think one of the things that when you buy a used, used uh, like a King Air or something of that sort or one of the Cessna airplanes, uh, Pipers doesn't really matter. Is you want to know some history on that aircraft to see if it ever has been struck. Uh, one of the simple tools that uh, insurance people use to see if a if a aircraft has been struck, particularly the engine, because engine tends to have a lot of steel in it, is it'll take a magnet. If the um, if the, it seems like the uh, engine's been magnetized, because it shouldn't be magnetized, uh, but if it's magnetized, then you know that you're probably taking a lightning strike. Think and to go back through the service history of the airplane. If they've taken a lightning strike, to make sure that it's it has had a post lightning inspection done on it. Uh, that's sort of key because a lot of those airplanes. There's a lot of those airplanes out on the market today, particularly now. Um, and I know on the lightning side, this happened to Bombardier not long ago where they were trying to deliver an airplane. They got struck in flight test, and then the customer was freaking out about not wanting to take it. And mm-hmm. anytime you have a lightning event happen on anything, like if you had a lightning strike, a home you're about to buy, you would do an inspection on it, make sure it didn't have some, some weird thing happening, electrical distribution system in the wall you can't see. That's a similar sort of thing in an airplane, but an airplane you can pretty much disassemble to make sure everything's cool. You can't do that to a home, but yeah. Because uh, a lot of the design on those airplanes, the lightning protection on those airplanes is pretty good. But it doesn't mean that there's no damage or there's doesn't mean there's not some little gremlin hiding in there. And that's that's usually when that's usually when the lightning people get brought in is when uh, there's been a strike or they're trying to buy or sell an airplane. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.